Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're continuing our talk on the evolution of the wine critic, and our guest is Jeb Dunnick, editor in chief of JebDunnick.com. Jeb, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So I was wondering if you could tell Peter and I a little background about yourself and your journey through wine. Yeah, so, you know, I come into wine completely self-trained. I grew up on a farm in rural Indiana. We certainly did not have wine on the dinner table. You know, for most of my childhood, we drink either water or milk. And it really wasn't until after college, working abroad and having the ability to kind of travel through France that I really fell in love with wine. After college, I took a job in upstate New York working for Lockheed Martin. I was into rock climbing at that time, and so I would make a drive from Binghamton, New York, into the Shaw Gunks. So the Gunks was a famous rock climbing region. And I remember I would pass by a little wine store out kind of in the middle of nowhere. And for whatever reason, one day I was driving back and I stopped. I think that was probably the first bottle of wine I ever bought. And from that point on, I pretty much monopolized our vacation schedule, our checking account, all of our free time, all with kind of with the goal of tasting as many wines as I could. And, you know, really visiting as many regions as as I could as well. So, you know, we weren't making a lot of money in those days. And so I still remember I would hide $30 a week from my wife so I could go out every Friday. I would buy a new bottle of wine. So I had a very humble start in wine. Did you have an epiphany bottle or is it just you just fell in love with everything you were tasting because you kept going to that one wine shop and they just kept turning you on to new and new things? Yeah, you know, I never had an epiphany bottle. That seems to be a lot of people have these epiphany moments. I never really did. You know, I always was I loved wine from the pleasure standpoint, from the history standpoint. I loved the collection of it. I loved doing research and buying wine and selling wine. So kind of the whole process really attracted me. And so then kind of we spent about two years in upstate New York, and then we moved to Colorado, where I worked for Ball Aerospace, and I did software for some satellites. I joined numerous tasting groups. I probably had three tasting groups going a week. I took a part-time job, kind of a high-volume wine store in Denver, just to learn kind of another side of the business. And then I think it was in 2008, I had a weekend that was free. And I think my wife did a trip home or something. And I thought, hey, I have a bunch of tasting notes. I love wine. I'm going to create a website. So I kind of created a website called The Run Report. It started as really like a blog. I grew it into kind of a publication, a quarterly PDF that I would release. I did that for free for three years and then went to subscription-based for two years. And it did really well. It kind of took off. It had good notoriety. We had good traction. And then in 2013, I had an email from Robert Parker who asked me to come work for him full-time at the Wine Advocate. So it was at that time that I left the Rome Report. I left engineering completely and I worked for the Wine Advocate for a little under five years. And then in 2017, I, again, I left the Wine Advocate, and then I started my own publication again, jetdonic.com. So what drove you to join the Wine Advocate when it was Robert Parker called and that's it? Or was there anything else that made it more attractive to you? It wasn't as easy a decision as I thought it would be. You know, the Rome Report did really well. I had a decent growing subscriber base. So I was kind of at the point with that anywhere where I was like, you know, do I continue with that? Do I leave engineering? Kind of what to do? And then... Really, it was just the chance to work with Parker. You know, I grew up reading his reviews. I loved his ethics. And so I really looked up to him. And I still do today. I think he's an incredible person. So I was thrilled to have the chance to work with him. And so that was a difficult opportunity to say no to. And does the Roan Report still exist? Or did it just shut down? Or you sold it to the Wine Advocate? 
I did not sell it. So I kept all those reviews. And then I kind of morphed that into jebthenight.com once I left the wine after. So it was always there. I kept it up, but it's you know no longer exists as an entity. And Parker was such an iconic personality. Obviously, when you think wine critic, you think Robert Parker more than the wine advocate, which is his actual publication. And Wine Spectator is almost like the opposite. Like I don't think that many people know, consumers know who Jim Lauby or James Molesworth are versus Wine Spectator. What do you think drives that difference between an individual being a name like Jeb Dunnick or the publication itself? I think businesses determine that direction and they set that difference. And I think it's a good difference. Publications do not write reviews. People do. And so every person has their own taste. They have their own writing style. They have their own scoring methodology. And so you as a consumer, you need to know your critic. The person writing that review is far more important than the publication they write for. And I think that is too often lost in today in wine media. And there's a reason for that because businesses want to protect their brand. They don't want it to be another person or an employee. And so there's always a little bit of a balance there between a business, especially in criticism like this, on who gets the credit. And so I think highlighting the reviewer is unquestionably the right way to do criticism today. And so, you know, if consumers are going to use wine criticism correctly, they need to know who's writing that review. And that means they have to do a little work. It puts a little bit of onus onto the consumer, but that's the way it should be. And wine is not a very simple subject. And so it is on the consumer to know who's writing that review. And I'm curious why you decided to go out on your own again. Obviously, you were on your own with the Roan Report. Why did you decide to start JebDunning.com and leave The Advocate? I mean, obviously, a couple of years later, then Robert Parker retired. Was that like a, a slow process that you knew was coming? Or is there something, a bigger motivation there? Well, so the company changed dramatically over the four and a half years that I was there. And I loved working at the Wine Advocate when Bob was heavily involved. Yet as he pulled back, truthfully, I lost trust in the company. I disagreed a lot with their decisions, with their management style, with the direction of the company. And it just wasn't a good fit at that point. So I was very sad, yet happy to leave. And it was some of it a goal like satisfying that entrepreneurial craving as well? You know, I'm not driven to be an entrepreneur. I would have happily, if Bob had still been there and if the culture was still the same, I would still be there. Got it. And so obviously I've heard you talk about, you have a specific focus on the wines that you want to cover and things like the Wine Advocate and Spectator have a much wider purview. Besides that, what do you think is the other main differentiator between JebDunnick.com and other publications like The Advocate or Spectator? Well, so, you know, certainly we're more similar from a functional standpoint, than different. I mean, you can't reinvent wine reviews to a degree. Now, I do feel that we're a little bit more of a singular voice. I do not believe in huge teams, masses of critics, where critics are interchangeable and substitutable. And so I see a lot of value in having a small team where people cover multiple regions. I think if you have to know your critic, and I think consumers do, it makes it easier for the consumer to keep that as a small group of people that they can know and they can understand and they can have trust in. So, for example, we have one person covering Bordeaux, Napa, and Washington. So we have a very consistent viewpoint on Bordeaux varieties from around the world. We have the same person covering the Rhone and Central Coast. Uh, again, a very consistent viewpoint. We've brought on Audrey Frick to cover Italy, and we're hoping to slowly grow that. So I'm not opposed to multiple reviewers. One person today cannot cover the whole world. 
In fact, looking back, I'm a little jealous of the critics 20 years ago or a few decades ago. The wine world was so much smaller. It was so much easier to wrap your head around. You know, the number of great estates was so much smaller. Today, it's a massive endeavor to try and cover all of these regions. And then in addition to that, just talking about the site, I don't pretend to be a writer. I come at this as an engineer. I was a horrible writer. So, you know, I'm not the best writer. I take a more engineering, problem-solving approach to the company. And truthfully, I hate it. I think there's nothing worse than a wine critic who tries to be a wine writer. And they obscure all the information that I really want to know. I want to know, hey, what do you think of the vintage? What was the style? What do you think of the wine? And so I'm geared towards, with the site, to helping consumers make buying decisions. And so that is unquestionably the focus. The goal of jebdunnock.com is to help subscribers find wines that they like. Not wines that I like, wines that they like. And so by doing that, we focus on certain regions. We give concise vintage reports. We taste as broadly as possible. And we try to talk about the style, the structure of the wine. And so that's the goal. And we keep it pretty focused on that. We don't do a lot of opinion pieces. We don't do a lot of commentary. And it's always a balance between trying to review another wine and actually do producer profiles, which are very helpful. So, and then I guess then lastly, you know, we don't work with the trade. We don't do events. All these things are slippery slopes. We don't take money to review wines. We don't take money, be that an importer, a producer, or a region. We are subscriber funded. And you know you're getting an unbiased opinion. So I'm curious to drill in on that point where you don't do a lot of opinion pieces and it sort of obscures the focus of it. What do you think the negatives of doing those opinion pieces are in terms outside of like, clearly, you know, you guys are very focused, but how does that dilute the reviews by doing those things like opinion pieces and other wine writing? I don't think it dilutes it. Actually, if you have the time to do it and you can do it, that's fine. But there is, from a business standpoint, everyone does that. There's no reason you should try and compete with that market. No one wants to pay for that money. I mean, you're driving a business and you're trying to make an income and so you can grow your subscriber base. No one should be paying a lot of money for opinion pieces when they're for free everywhere on the internet. So I choose to compete where I think I can do well. And that is providing comprehensive coverage. Now, if I have a lot of free time, which unfortunately I don't, I would love to write, hey, what's the role of a critic? And I think these are important things that can be said. But due to our resources, we don't focus on that. So I am curious, So besides yourself leaving The Advocate, you've had Galoni, Form Venice, you've had Jem Suckman going on his own. What do you think is driving this trend for people to go out on their own and add more venue and more publications to the mix? A couple of things. I don't know if you could even say that really the trend is that way. Recently, you've seen these companies hire more and more critics. So I almost think the trend has been towards more business-driven, team-driven reviews. And that is because of the size of the wine world today and the difficulty in one person trying to cover everything. Having said that, the reason people go independently is because that's the best way to do wine criticism. If you're going to say, I think that the person is the most important part, then independent criticism is the way to go. So do you see the independent critics changing the business of the traditional publications? Maybe they're pushing them in a way in some direction, whether that's to take less advertising or something else? I don't think that the independent critics are changing the business. I think there in the past, there were a lot of independent critics. I mean, you had Alan Meadows, you had John Gilman, you had Parker, you you had a number of small independent critics. And you don't hear about them quite as much as you do today, where it's more about these larger publications. So I think that is maybe the trend. 
I want to push back against that because I don't agree with these huge, massive teams where the review is listed as a publication review as opposed to an individual review. So I think there's always this trying to find this balance between businesses trying to make huge, to protect their brand, to cover the whole world, and also give their critics the credit that they deserve. So you mentioned one of the parts that you wanted to have full control on was the ethics part in terms of you take money from your subscribers. That's the only place you take money. But obviously, you, I'm assuming you are given wines as well, because like to fund everything by purchasing the wines is a massive investment. So I'm curious on what do you think are the best practices around ethics or what is your take on what is good ethics for being a wine critic? I guess a couple things. So if you're going to present yourself as an independent, trustworthy source, you'd better not be taking money a substantial amount of money from the same people making those products. You know, there's a reason Consumer Reports is independent and subscriber functions. So ethics from a standpoint is that you identify and avoid conflicts of interest. And so you do your best to minimize that. Now, the wine industry is a lot of shades of gray. You may go to dinner with a winemaker. Despite your best efforts, sometimes someone will pick up the tab. These are all the shades of gray. You should always pay your own way. You always pay your airfare, meals, hotel, everything. You don't ever take money. But because there's these subtle shades of gray, doesn't mean that there's not a line that can be crossed. And so we're very cognitive of these issues and we try to do our best to minimize them when we identify them. I mean, back in the day though, Parker did buy a lot of the wines, but that era is gone where someone could actually afford to buy the top wines in a specific area and really make a business out of it, right? So, right. So this is the shades of gray that I'm talking about. So we buy a lot of wines. I mean, you can talk to wine shops, you know, that I frequent, we buy a lot of wines, but you could not purchase, we average around nine to 12,000 reviews a year. And you, from a business standpoint, you could not purchase all those. You probably couldn't get access to them, first of all, to purchase them. So the fact that I show up, at a region and trade organizations put on a tasting for me. I feel comfortable with that. I understand that they are there working to promote their wines, to present those wines in front of them. I have no problem with that. Now, if a wine region starts to try to pay you to come and do that, I have serious issues, ethical issues with that. So there is this line that you can say, look, I understand that there are parts of the business that can be a slippery slope that you have to be aware of. You always work to mitigate. That doesn't mean that there's no line that can be crossed out there. And in terms of actually giving scores, I know I've heard you talk in the past about you were against writing an actual critical review of a wine while it's blind. Like you seem like you value blind tasting as a skill, but like to actually write a review that's meaningful for your users, you think that doing it blind isn't necessarily valuable? No, absolutely. So I don't want to be mistaken here. I'm a huge fan of blind tasting. You know, I think everybody should do blind tasting. It teaches you how to approach each wine in the same manner. It teaches you to always keep an open mind. It teaches you to have some humility and it teaches you kind of to question yourself. These are all good things for a reviewer to have. Now, I view the role of a critic as much more than saying, hey, pretty red fruits, spice, 92 points. I think the purpose of a review is to provide context. How does a wine fit into a vintage? Is it a classic representation from the estate? Is it a classic representation of a region or is it modern? Is it traditional? Too much of this context is thrown away due to blind tasting. And really, the people who do blind tasting, the reason that they do that is so that they can take money 
from advertising. So they can take money from the trade. The only people promoting blind tasting being the best way to review wines are the people taking money from producers. This should shock no one. So in addition, they also promote it as a better way of tasting. This is how we do it. They sell their process. My belief is if your results are good, you sell the results. I'm happy to have people look at our reviews, our context, our timeliness, and the context of the reviews. So if you have good results, sell the results. If your results suck, you sell your process. And so I see a lot of that in the wine industry. But just to finish up on that really quick, you know, at the end of the day, people can run their business however they want. I run my business. I don't take advertisements. I think ad-driven content is a race to the bottom. It drives clickbait headlines. It sensationalizes everything. We see that with news organizations today. So we don't take ads. We don't take any money for reviewing wines from importers, regions, producers, anyone. And that's the way it's going to be at my company. Got it. So historically, getting a top score like a Parker 100 or a Spectator Wine of the Year would really propel a brand and drive sales. But there appears to be less impact when that happens today. And why do you think that is? Or do you think that's still true? Uh, No, I think it's unquestionably true that there is less impact today. And I think the main reason, to be honest, is that there are just so much good wine out there today that it dilutes the significance of any singular wine because there are other wines that are just as good from other regions, other producers. I think today there are more great producers making more incredible wines than ever in the world. And so it's a buyer's paradise. So, you know, there seems to be always the next great vintage coming along the lines and there is always a lot of great wines to chase. So it's not like there's just, you know, three iconic wines released in a year that consumers have to chase. There are a lot of great, great wines out there. And so I think that diminishes the impact of those ratings and awards. So it diminishes the impact. What do you think then is the pathway for a modern producer, someone who's just started or was around for five or 10 years to become iconic today? Yeah. So make a consistently great wine. (laughs) I tell you, that sounds trite, but that is unquestionably where it starts. Now, a producer has to have their wines tasted and reviewed by the top publications. I think if you want to have an iconic status, you're going to have to do that. But it starts with making a great wine year in, year out for a significant time. I don't believe a consumer can jump onto the stage today and one vintage and be declared iconic. I think it takes time to build that up. Yeah. So as you said, there's so many great wines out there. I think that's the baseline. You're right. Like make a consistent great wine. Do you have any thoughts on how they still then differentiate after that? Take Napa, for example. I'd say there's a lot of great wines being made. A lot of them are consistently very good, maybe taste a little too similar, but <laughs> and so made by the exact same people for the most part. Yeah. Same vineyard, same vineyard, same exactly. same vineyard, yeah, yeah. next offer, blah, blah, blah. Like, how do they differentiate between each other? Or maybe in your mind, how do they differentiate? I don't have the crystal ball there, the no. You just have to make a good wine from a winemaker standpoint, they make a great wine. Do they need to market it? It has to get reviewed, I think. I think a lot of people use those reviews to drive purchasing decisions. And then you have to make enough of it to where enough people could try it. So it has to get out there so people can have exposure. That's one thing that makes Bordeaux so really well known is that they make the magic of Bordeaux, if you will, that they can make these incredible wines at very large volumes. Whereas in Napa, it's very easy for all these small producers. Some of the reasons you don't know about them is because they make 300 cases and they sell it directly to the mailing list. 
they don't need to be really well known to sell out. So it's about a production level plays into that equation as well. So I am curious, especially you being an engineer, with the digitization of the economy, it is certainly an enabler for many independent voices, making the cost of entry much lower. What do you think the process is for an independent wine critic to build a brand for themselves? Obviously, you've been doing this for the last couple of years. Is it easier than it was many years ago, or do you think it's getting more difficult with more entrants? So a couple of points. The cost of entry, you can think, is low because anybody can get a website. I was lucky because I was an engineer. I built my own website. I still use the same SQL database today. So I was very lucky in that regard. So you can create a website and get your information out there. But providing professional coverage is hard. It is long hours. It's lots of travel. It's lots of time away from your family. And it is expensive to make these trips. And so there's no secret here. You can't just declare yourself a wine critic and then review 10 wines a month. I mean, you have to bust your ass, excuse my language, to make this happen. And so to give you some context, for five years at the Rome Report, this was kind of a second job. My wife and I would commute into work. We would leave at 6.30. I would drop her off at 7. I would work till 3. I would pick her up and we would have a normal life from you know 4 to 8. And then I would work on the Rome Report from 8 p.m. to about 2 a.m. every night. And I did that for five years. And so that's, I think, why that site did well is because it delivered close to a professional level of coverage, which is hard, which is a full-time job. And so you have to put in the work. And I think that's the main difference. And that's kind of why I push back a little bit when I see bloggers or influencers so, or whatnot trying to just write these little opinion pieces and get traction with them. It takes much more than that, I think, to be a successful wine critic. And I take that title seriously. I mean, wine critic is a good profession. I think it should be held to a very high standard. And so when I see other publications not living up to that, I can get frustrated and push back a little bit. I take it very serious as a career. But segueing on that point, though, if someone does put in the time like you did, you think in many ways it's easier for these people to establish themselves like because the technology and the whole economics of the digital economy have enabled them to get out there and actually control their viewership and offer up things to be able to like, take payments or do whether it's Patreon or subscriptions or Shopify, whatever they're going to do to like get an income, it's a lot easier than it was 10 years ago. Well, I don't know about 10 years ago, but it's not that cost of entry is, should not deter anybody. And I truly believe there is room in the wine industry for anybody that is willing to work hard. You know, I started the Rhone Report as an independent publication when Parker was at his heyday for the Rhone, and I did well. I mean, there is a lot of opportunity out there that if somebody loves wine, they're passionate about wine, and they are willing to put in the work, there is always a place for talent and hard work. And I think probably in any industry. And so you are what you do. You want to be a wine critic? Suck it up and be a wine critic and do the job. So people have been talking a lot about score inflation and even score compression with a lot more high scores like hundreds being awarded and the range of scores getting tighter. Do you think that's true? And if so, what do you think is driving that dynamic? Well... I do think scores have increased. Now, with regards to score compression, I almost would disagree with you. I think in the past, there was probably more score compression when nothing got over 92 or 94. But what you are seeing today is more use of the whole scale. And so you are seeing higher rated wines more often. Personally, I think that is completely driven by the quality coming out of the estates today. That is education, viticulture, winemaking, investment. It goes on and on. Literally, you almost have to work to find a bad wine today. 
I mean, you can taste thousands of wines and a very small fraction of those are wines that you wouldn't drink at some occasion. And so I think that's what's driving that. People score how they score as well. You know, if we think about, oh, everybody's scoring higher, you know, I think Steve Tanzer scored consistently throughout his career. I feel like I've scored consistently the way I do, and it could be higher in some cases than some and lower in others. So I've been true to myself. And I think that is the important part. That's not to say that pandering or artificially inflating scores can't exist out there as well. So have you actually like looked at your data to see if maybe the 100-point score is more prevalent as a percentage of wine tasted than in the past? Or is it the same and you're just tasting more wines? It's a tiny, tiny percentage. Now, I've done like a histogram of the things, and I'm pretty happy with how it goes. And so I don't see hundreds, 97, 98, all these high-rated wines still remain a small fraction of what's being reviewed. And what leads people to think everybody scores very highly is a couple things. First, a lot of times they don't subscribe to everybody and they don't look at the data. So they just get emails that, generally speaking, quote high scores. And then second, we went away from in the past where it was a readable format. You know, the wine advocate used to come out in a manila envelope and you'd read through it and it wasn't a sorted list. So it was great information. You could read about the estate. There was a producer profile in there. I loved that format. You know, I still have my old wine advocates. Today, no one cares about that. I mean, we produce a PDF and very few people read them. But what they do is they go in there and they click on the list of wines and you get a, there's a thousand wines and the latest Sonoma report, a thousand over a thousand. And then you sort it based off score. And so what you see is, oh, look, there's three, four pages of very highly scored wines. And it leads to the impression that, hey, everything is well scored, regardless of the pages and pages of wines that are rated as very good to outstanding. So I do not analyze the data. I pretty much let the scores lie where they lie. So I do a tasting, I have a view on the wine, I write it down and I go to the next. So I'm never going to let the fact that I maybe have too many 100s or too few 100s change how I view a single one. So I am curious on the actual using a number equivalent in terms of using that scale. Do you feel like that puts your neck on the line to put a number next to the words you wrote and it connects the dots between the pros, the actual review, the words, and the number? Like you try to like make sure that someone could understand that was 100 point, even if they didn't see the number? Or how do you connect those things for your... Well, to couple ways. So the reality is when you write a lot of notes, some of your notes suck. Not all are going to be masterpieces. Notes and scores go together. Now, in a perfect world, you would not have to have a score next to a note for sure. I would love for people to be able to read that note and get a clear view of what I think about it without reading the score. And so scores are used for publications when you're doing large reports and you're trying to give a clear delineation of preferences to your subscribers. That's really the only time that I really think about scores. I hate to talk about scores at dinner. I think people over obsess about scores all the time. Professional critics change scores when you buy a wine and you see this all the time with Hedonist Gazettes. Professional critics realize, hey, wines show differently. Your view of that wine can change. They age differently than you think that they did. So scores are not... They're not in perpetuity. Yeah, it's a view of a wine at a certain point in time, and you're trying to give advice to the consumer. Once the consumer has that wine in their glass, what I think of it is irrelevant. All that matters is if they like that wine, 
Would they pour another glass? Would they buy a bottle? Are they happy to have it in their cellar or on their table? That is the sole goal of drinking wine. It's a beverage of pleasure. And wine criticism is to help people make smart decisions where to spend their money to find wines that they like. Obviously, you use the 100-point scale. What are some of the things you're looking for when you give a wine 100? Like, how would you define, like, if you go back and look at your 100 points, like, what are some of the characteristics of a wine that are a 100-point wine? Yeah, so I look at wine, I kind of have a view of it that I say, wine is a beverage of pleasure. So great wine, greatness in wine to me is a wine that offers hedonistic pleasure. You would better want to have another glass. You'd better want to have a drink of that wine. Now, there are a lot of wines that can be simple pleasure. Great wine offers also intellectual pleasure. So it's complex. It seems like every time you come back to that glass, it offers something different. I also look for intensity of aromas and flavors. So you want a wine to deliver richness and intensity, but yet never be heavy, to be light on its feet. A lot of times you'll say it's weightless. And so a characteristic I would think of truly great wines are they deliver an incredible amount of intensity, yet never with heaviness. They can have elegance with power. So those are some criteria I use. You can also look about ageability. I've waffled on this a little bit. I've kind of played both sides. I used to think, oh, wine doesn't have to age to be truly great. The more I've been in industry, I think the ability of a wine to improve over its lifespan, and that lifespan is dependent upon the variety. I don't require a Grenache to age as long as a Bordeaux. The ability of a wine to measurably improve over its lifespan is a characteristic of a truly great wine. And then pretty much lastly, you have singularity. So truly great wines, whether it be Bogusel Hommage, Reyes, Aubryon, Harlan, these are singular wines. You can find these wines in wine tastings. They stand out and they speak either to a winemaker, to a seller, or to a vineyard or terroir. Those are kind of the components and how I approach wine. I would never approach wine and say, if it's a Syrah, it has to be peppery or it has to be that way. People can make wine however they want, whatever style they want. And yet, so I try to approach each wine with the same criteria. Hey, does it offer pleasure? Do I like it? Is it complex? Do I want to have another sip? Do I think it has the ability to age? I mean, all of these things kind of play into how I view wine. Interesting. And one of the areas I've always struggled with is barrel samples. And when people do on premier tastings a year and a half, two years before the wine is actually done. And I know that a lot of times people give ranges, but it seems very premature to even put that range on there when it's not even in the final bottle, right? Or maybe even the final blend. So I would disagree. So I think evaluating a barrel sample is very similar to evaluating a young wine. You're looking for purity of fruit, quality of tannins, mid-palate, length, all of these components that you're kind of trying to evaluate are there. And you can unquestionably make judgments on barrel samples. Now, ranges, you know, you'll see when you go from a range to a final bottle score, we'll miss those you know, we're pretty consistent, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I look back and I'm always pretty happy with how it goes. But, excuse the lane, but shit happens, you know, and things go bad, you can have VA. And so the range, again, the reason we taste from barrel is because the wines are released before we can do final bottle ratings. And so what we're trying to do is help the consumer to give them a little bit of insight. And I even say on my website, I'm like, hey, you should take these ratings with a grain of salt. I take these ratings with a grain of salt. I know when I go back to them, they may not be in the same range. Nevertheless, the goal is to give as much guidance as we can when we can. So when that wine hits the shelf, if I have not had a chance to taste it from bottle, there's something out there for the subscriber to say, okay, he tasted it out of barrel. It looked pretty good. I think I can take a chance on it. 
Yeah, it's interesting to say that now that you say it, if you're in service of your subscribers who are making buying decisions and they're buying these wines before they're released, like they're doing for Bordeaux and buying futures, I can see that that you're servicing your consumers who are your subscribers and that's your razor for why that adds value. We had had that at Costa Brown even. We were selling the wines before some of them were even bottled <laughs> at some point. So I think you fail at the stake because all of these Paso producers are releasing their uh, 2018s. And for whatever reason, if they had submitted barrel samples last year, I would have something to offer my subscribers. So my subscribers are getting these emails from a mailing list. So they have to make a buying decision. And I'm worthless to it. I feel horrible. I'm getting all these, hey, why do you suck so bad? And I can only do what I can do. So that brings an interesting point of who are your subscribers? What's their profile? Is it mostly collectors, people who are buying off mailing lists? Or who are they? So I don't have a huge amount of data actually from the subscribers. So I don't know income, demographics, et cetera. Now, what I can assume and what I knew from the wine advocate, unquestionably, people who are willing to pony up a hundred bucks a year are pretty serious about wine and mostly collectors. And so California is very important. A large percentage, probably 80% or more of our subscriber base is US based. And so there's a huge focus on California, be that Central Coast or Napa or Sonoma. These days, there's been a lot of like user-generated content making some headway or traction, which some people consider like a Yelp review and maybe similar to criticism like Seller Tracker, Vivino. How do you think those play or what role do they play in sort of the wine criticism landscape? Well, speaking about, say, Seller Tracker, I mean, Seller Tracker is an incredible platform because it allows you to follow individual people. So you know who you're getting information from. And I think there's an incredible value there. Now, I don't think there are many, if any, seller tracker users who are providing the same level of coverage that the professionals are. But there are great tasters out there who are writing great notes on seller tracker that will unquestionably provide value for people. So the trick is if you use seller tracker and you see somebody that agrees with you, or even if you disagree, yet they wrote a good note, they describe the style of the wine and you kind of agree with that. There's huge value in this. Having said that, the aggregate view when you start averaging scores, zero times 100 is still zero. So I see no value in these type of average scores with wine quality judgments. Yeah. One of the things I think is interesting about Seller Tracker is that, especially for older vintages, a lot of times these individual collectors will, will be tasting and provide pretty good notes where it's really hard for a critic to kind of keep up on back vintages outside of like some of the big things and when you do vertical tastings and things like that. Absolutely. And to let you know, I was a very prolific taster on Seller Tracker back in the day. So I put all my notes there and I exported them. And they went straight into the room report. So Eric does an incredible job. He's a quality individual, has developed a great platform. So as we wrap up this episode... I'm curious on what are you most excited for in the wine industry in the coming year? Well, from a personal standpoint, I'm excited about getting back on the road. I have a trip to Napa in a week. I have two trips to the Rhone in the next six weeks. And then I have another trip to Napa. And then I have another trip to Bordeaux. So for the past 15 years, I've probably traveled to Europe five or six times a year. And you get to a point where you took a little bit for granted. And now I'm like, I can't wait to go back over. And I forgot how to pack properly. So... (laughs) It's like riding a bike. You don't forget. <laughs> I back in like 20 minutes, you know, I was great. And I had everything set up, but it's going to take me a little longer this time. But from a wine standpoint, it really is a great time to be a wine lover. So current vintages are 18 and 19. Pretty much beautiful vintages from around the world. I don't know anywhere where it's not a notable vintage. 18 in the Southern Rome was a more challenging one. 19 is great. 
18 and 19 in the Northern Rhone are going to be great. 18 and 19 in Napa are great. Sonoma Coast is great. Washington did well. The tariffs have kind of been put on hold. Where that goes, we don't know. But right now, everything is going really well. So yeah, so really, it's a buyer's paradise in wine right now. And so you've never had a time when there are so many producers out there making incredible wines, and we're lucky enough to have access to some of the negatives would be the price increases. It's very hard, especially starting out, to try and get a foundation in tasting these truly iconic wines just to have a baseline, which is, especially for critics, it's critical to have something like that. But for a general consumer, everybody wants to taste the first gross and DRCs and Harlands. That entry is very hard today just due to prices. Having said that, I've been lucky enough to be able to taste those wines and I can tell you there are lots of alternatives. And so I'm here to help you alleviate that pressure, but it's an education to taste some of those great wines. So, Awesome. Well, for any listeners who don't know, obviously they can find you at jebdunnick.com. Are there other places that you are sharing your content or is it mainly just through the website? So no, I do all social media. So we have Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But unquestionably, it's always it's on the website. And then I have social media that really is, we don't market, we don't have very much. So I put stuff on Instagram or on Twitter, but it's also personal on there as well. So you can find me in any of those places. I do my best to respond on those platforms as well. I, sometimes I get behind and lose some stuff, but I do try. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. We greatly appreciate all your articulate answers. Hey guys, I'm thrilled to be here and I think you guys do a great job and thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.